I we're we're in Isaiah chapter three, and uh, so I, I, I my plan today is to kind of get through chapter five, and then next week when we're together, Lord willing, no snow apocalypse or anything like that, um, we'll. Uh, We'll go into the call of Isaiah. So this is prepping for kind of the call of Isaiah. And and one of the questions that I asked, and, and you can be thinking about it this week, is um, why is Isaiah's call not in chapter 1? Um, why? Because chronologically it's the beginning of the story. But why is it that the the book itself is arranged in such a way so that it comes in the middle of the first section? The first section is 1 through 12. And and I've suggested to you, I, just, just to kind of remind you, I suggested that um, the way that 1 through 12 is set up is there's a prologue in chapter 1 that kind of gives the big problem. And then and then 2 through, uh, two through 5 give a, a kind of mix of a diagnosis and a remedy. So if you want to think of it in, in medical terms, there's a, there's a diagnosis of the disease and then there's the cure that God's going to offer to the people. And then you have chapter 6, which we'll talk about next week. And then, and then you have another section, 7 through 11, that gives you, again, diagnosis and cure. And then chapter 12 is kind of an epilogue to that section. That's, that's, that's the first um, section of the book. Big picture, the big question that we're asking ourselves based on chapter 1 and chapter 66 is... Um, is the question of how the faithless city, because that's how it's introduced in chapter 1, Jerusalem is this faithless city. In fact, Isaiah refers to her as a whore or prostitute. How does this faithless city become, at the end, this glorious, faithful bride? Um, those are the images that we get in, in, in the bookends. Uh, and then, then, so that just helps us understand what we know what's, what's going on in this whole book. Now, um, I want to look at chapter 3 again. I, I want to try, if we can, to cover um, 3, 4, 5 today. And I think that's doable. Um, we won't be doing it verse by verse, but I think it's doable for us to get the big picture of the uh, of disease and the remedy in, in 3, 4, and 5. So the first 15 verses of chapter 3. What, um, what God does is he... He tries to kind of wake the people up and to wake them up from their from their um, slumber, from their uh, uh, um, state of, of being disloyal to him, disobedient to him. And 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 how does he um, what, what does he say there that, that is going to happen? And if they don't wake up, if they don't change in 3, 1 to 15. And I can read it. I'll, I'll read it if that, if that would help because it's been a couple of weeks. Let me read the first 15 verses. But that's the question. What is, how does God um, provoke them to wake up, to repent, to change their ways? I'll read it. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. 
and the people will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants, are their oppressors, and women shall rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. All right. So what's God going to do that he kind of, he he reveals to them? What's the picture that he paints in order to provoke them to repent from their their wickedness? What, what, What are some of the features of, of this picture that he paints. Kind of that he will have like incompetent people rule over them. Yeah, that's one thing that's it's going to happen. And actually that's that's going to happen sooner rather than later. Um, that, that in the near term, what the, one of the features of their judgment is they're going to have really bad rulers over them, really incompetent uh, rulers who shouldn't be in those positions. So, you know, um, you, you kind of, uh, we have this phrase, you, you get the leaders you deserve. Um, meaning, you know, you can complain about the people who are ruling, but recognize, just look around. You know, it's, it's sort of the fault of the people that, that we have those leaders. And that's, that's part of the message of Isaiah. So, um, incompetent and even really unfaithful rulers over them. That is a judgment on on a people. Uh, It's one of the reasons, incidentally, in the New Testament, where we're told to pray for our leaders and those over us. Um, They may be wicked. They may not have any interest in spiritual things, but um, it can always be worse. And and they have a significant effect on us as the people of God. All right, so what else? What else is part of the picture that he paints uh, of of their judgment? You get references to famine. Yeah. And it's almost as if the famine also applies to the shortage of faithful leaders. Yeah, and that's so typical in Isaiah. We're going to see this over and over again. That famine, well, it's, it's not just Isaiah. It's really the prophets in general. Famine is like a stand-in for, yeah, it's the absence of food, but it's the absence of all kinds of nourishment. Uh, of Oftentimes uh, in, in Ezekiel in particular, and, and a little bit in Isaiah, but more in Ezekiel, they'll talk about a famine of God's word. That, you know, you have plenty of food, but what you don't have are good teachers. And so that's a kind of famine. But here, here, Emma, you're right. It's a famine of leadership and a, an actual famine that's so severe that he has this picture in, beginning in verse 6 that someone is going to get grabbed by his brother and he's going to say, you be our leader because at least you have like a coat to put on. And that's going to make you... 
stand out from the crowd. That's going to make you appear to be really successful, just to have the basics of life. And and the brother whom he grabs, who has this cloak, says, "I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to be the leader. I don't want anything to do with this. Why would I want to lead this? It's just a heap of ruins. There, there's nothing to it. Now, again, think about this because remember when Isaiah's prophesying, when he's saying these things, he's saying these things at a time when Judah had. It wasn't the height of its prosperity. Uh, that comes." you know, at a different era and the kingdom's already divided. And so, I mean, there've been better days, but they're not bad days. Um, they're, they're, they're actually pretty good days in Judah. And as they looked and tried to calculate how they could manage the fact that they're between these two great empires, they, they think they have it figured out. But, but when Isaiah looks at them, he looks and says, this, this is just going to become a heap of ruins very quickly. Um, why? This is the second question. Why, what are they doing now that's going to lead to that outcome, to that kind of judgment? What characterizes their culture, their society, their lives um, in, in the first 15 verses? They boldly identify with their own sin. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, there are a few other aspects, but that's got to be number one. And, and... And it's, it's verse 9. The look on their faces um, bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Now, this is, this is really bad. There are going to be other places where Isaiah says, here's your problem. You proclaim your allegiance to the Lord but then you go off and worship idols and do other things and have kind of these other gods on the side. That's a big problem in Judah throughout the book. But this is actually worse because what's happening here is they're pretty open about their sin. They, um, it, it's not an object of shame for them any longer. You can almost see, um, we see this in Genesis as we see the progress of the people who are opposed to God, uh, particularly in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 and then in, through Genesis 11, um, it, it, there, there is a progression in terms of opposition to God. And none of it's good, but maybe, maybe stage one is you still are worshiping God, you still are doing these outward things, but the rest of the time you're worshiping other gods and you're trying to kind of hedge your bets. That's bad. Uh, but, but the progression is you reach a point where those sinful things that you're ashamed of or you should be ashamed of, you're not even ashamed of anymore. Now, that's typically looked at as a kind of liberation. That, that's looked at in, in the sinful mind of, of people as, as freedom. If I can now just be totally open about my sin and totally open about things that are shameful, then that's sort of freeing for me. It's, it's what you see the rulers doing, the kings of the earth doing in Psalm 2. They're, they're, they're shaking their fist at, at, at God um, and basically saying, let us throw off our fetters. Let's, let's tear off our chains. We, we need to be free from even the shame of our sin. And that, that's what Israel's doing. And it's, you know, put them in the position where they're essentially um, like, like Sodom. And the other thing they're doing, just to, just to kind of um, 
get to it quickly. The other thing they seem to be doing is is really oppressing the poor in their midst. So if you look at um, uh, verse 14, and this is particularly aimed at the leadership, uh, that what the leaders are doing is they look at the poor as almost just like a resource for them to exploit, not as people that they're supposed to serve and to help. So he talks about the elders and the princes It's you who have devoured the vineyard. This is verse 14. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor? And and, and you see the image is from, you know, is what you would do with grain. You take the grain and you just, you crush it in order to get what you want out of it. Now that's fine if you're dealing with grain, but, but these are people. And, and what the princes are doing is the people are just dispensable uh, resources for them to use, to crush, so that they get what they want out of it. Um, so they're looking at people as j- just purely instruments for their own ends and not as people who are the Lord's people in this case. All right. So, so that's one picture of the problem, the disease. Let's look at another picture uh, of the problem or the disease. It begins in verse 16 and goes to verse 1 of chapter 4. And this is a problem that is directly aimed at the women of the city. Um, now, now, it's really interesting because um, he now switches gears and instead of looking ahead at what God will do when he'll destroy Jerusalem... He's actually looking at the way it is right now. And only at the end, or actually at two points, in the middle and then at the end, does he talk about what he's going to do because of it. But what characterizes, and I'll read it again just because I don't want to assume that that you've read it recently. Um, But that's the question I want you to think about when I read. Um, What is his problem with the women of Jerusalem? What are they doing that is so egregious? We know what the general population are doing. Or or maybe we could say we know what the men are doing, right? Because they would have been the princes and the the rulers. Um, We know what they're doing. They're trumpeting their shameful acts. They don't care anymore. And they're grinding people um, and treating them as, as resources. But what about the women? Verse 16. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, Perfume boxes, the amulets, signet rings, nose rings, festal robes, and mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Now, what's the problem? What are these women doing 
And then what's the Lord going to do because of it? What's, what does Isaiah see or what does the Lord see that he considers to be so worthy of God's judgment in Israel at this time? Pride and seduction. Yeah, exactly. Pride. That, I think that's a great summary. That that that's, that puts it really concisely. Pride and seduction. They're they're um, they're glorying in simply physical beauty. Remember what the New Testament says: let your let your adornment not only be the outward, but but the inward uh, beauty of of the heart of a pure spirit. And and this is the exact opposite of the daughters of Zion. They're they're looking at themselves. They're and 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 just consumed by outward physical beauty, and also consumed by how they can use that outward physical beauty in in seduction of men. And and what's going to happen is their pride in their beauty is actually going to be turned to to real shame. It's sort of a Difficult passage to read in a way because of some of the vivid language that the Lord uses, exposing their private parts, shaving them. Uh, uh, that it's it's not it's not a pretty picture. And then for one, where they're going to all, you know, seven women would grab a hold of one man and say, you know, you don't even need to care for us. You don't even need to provide for us. Doesn't matter. We just need someone to ha- have our name, you know, move forward. And 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 even that isn't gonna isn't gonna happen. So, a grim picture of the men. Yeah, go. Sorry. I just um, I was thinking as I was thinking about this. Does it have any relation to their tech impression of the poor? Like to be able to Probably. adorn yourself, you have to have the money to do that. Yeah. So, is there any tie to that that the oppression? So that I could just spend it on myself and focus on myself. Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, he doesn't make that direct connection, but probably so. You get the impression that um, he's really aiming his his uh, fire, so to speak, at people who, like you said, have wealth, are, are are able to do all these things, spend spend all their money on themselves, and and no doubt that that played out in oppression of the poor. So yeah, I don't think that's. Uh, I think that's. <clears throat> I'm sure that's what's going on here because it's it's the princes and the men and then these women who obviously have a lot of money to spend and they spend it exclusively on their outward appearance. So I just wasn't sure because I felt like it came out. It was the women. It's all of a sudden it's very being very specific about the women. And it came directly after the just that that verse fourteen and fifteen about crushing the poor. Yeah, like, but it didn't seem to have a connection. But it wasn't sure. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think, and and I and I and I know it's it's a little bit hard for us. I think because in that first section, um, it does use more universal. It's kind of everybody. But if you think about the beginning of chapter three, that probably is more aimed at the men. But then you know, of course. 16 is yeah i think you're right though i think that the picture is um you know in verses 13 through 15 is kind of of everybody and and what's everybody doing well they're crushing the people grinding the face of the poor led by the elders in doing that now here's the surprise in chapter four and this is giving us sort of mini compressed hints about the whole book of Isaiah. Um, and we'll see this again after the call of Isaiah. So if we look at 1 through 12 as sort of the opening unit of thought, um, we're going to see 
these things uh, in both at uh, uh, both sides of the call of Isaiah. Here's the here's the surprise. So it's pretty desolate, pretty bad. But here's what it says. In that day, so the that day is all this judgment. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood stains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth uh, for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. All right. Um, so the remedy, um, we didn't keep a comprehensive list of the, the problem, the disease, but you know it's fresh in your mind. But when it comes to the remedy, the remedy first has to do with the fact that the Lord is going to raise up what he calls, and, and we'll have to track with these words through Isaiah. Um, we can't we can't fully unpack it here because the, this text doesn't fully unpack it. But but if you keep this word in your mind as you read through the rest of the book, it'll start to unpack it. The remedy has to do with the branch of the Lord, the branch of Yahweh. Um, so that's the so so again. You know, you want to store up or, or, or write notes so that when you're reading, you can track with this. It's kind of like um, in Genesis, if you've ever studied Genesis, you know that in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, the Lord promises a seed, a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and all that. And and you kind of have that word in your in your mind. And then you read, Abraham is promised a seed. And then, and then you read this seed promise come up over and over again in the rest of Genesis, and and you kind of you, you start to see it's a big deal. And then, and then it's not surprising when you open Galatians and Paul talks about the seed of Abraham. Um, and so it's it's like that here in Isaiah. Uh, there are a couple of words we're going to get, but this is the first one we've been introduced to. It's not the word seed; it's the word branch, the branch of the Lord. And so keep that one in your mind because he's going to play off of that in the rest of the book. But what's the branch of the Lord? Uh, well, first of all, when is the branch of the Lord going to spring up and, and, um, and, and do whatever he's going to do? When, when, what's, when is this happening, first of all? I mean, not, I'm not asking you to give me how it plays out in the rest of the Bible. I'm asking, like, in this text, when is it happening? See the same phrase in 18, verse 18, as in 2, 318, in that day. Yeah. In that day. Exactly. It's a good observation. So if you look at 318, uh, as the women are being, uh, you know, proud, well, in that day, he's going to judge them. And then we get another, in that day, 
So it's right in the midst of this judgment. When is it going to happen? Well, it's going to happen in the thick of their despair and their, and their judgment. Later on in Isaiah, in words that are probably pretty familiar to you, it'll say, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, uh, on them upon whom the darkness has fallen, a light will shine. So that's the image. It's, you know, it, the when is in judgment. So, in a way, if you're, if you're standing in Isaiah's place, you, you know a couple things are going to happen. You know that although it's pretty good right now, it looks like it's pretty good at least, um, God's going to judge. And, that's, and it's going to be really bad. But then you know that it's only through that judgment that then God's going to do what he's going to do in terms of restoration. So you, you know there are a couple stages still to come. It's through judgment that God's going to restore. What are the blessings that the branch of Yahweh is going to bestow? The branch of the Lord. What's he going to bring about? What are some of the images that are used? What are some of the blessings that are spelled out? Um, what's he going to do? And he's going to wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion. Good. So that's a big. Um, what? He is going to wash away their filth. I feel like that's not how you spell it. Uh, no, it is how you spell it. I don't know. Um, so he's going to wash away, essentially wash away their sin. And, and this is, this is a, a key word for Isaiah. Um, it, it, this, this idea of when the Lord restores, a big part of his restoration is going to be cleansing and washing away and dealing with all the, all the sin and all the guilt and all the consequences of the sin. That's huge. What else is he going to do? Um, it, 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 kind of alongside that. There's going to be a remnant. Yeah. There's going to be survivors. And yeah. He's going to shelter them. Yeah. So, so and, and the sheltering takes on a really specific form that um, might remind you of something. Did, did, you, did this remind you of anything in verse 5 when he says, The Lord's going to create over the whole site of Mount Zion a cloud by day and smoke and flaming fire by night. I mean, where have we seen that before? Right? We saw that back in Exodus. So in Exodus, when God, when God was, um, had first taken his people out of slavery in Egypt, and then he was leading them through the wilderness, he led them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And, um, and then, ultimately, at the end of Exodus, when the tabernacle's built, that visible presence kind of makes its way down into the center of the camp. But in the midst of destruction, God's going to do that again. And so... This, I'm going to say fire and cloud, but I want to maybe put it a different way so that you can start to see some connections. What I, And Isaiah will actually say this. He'll spell this out later on in his ministry, and he'll use this exact language. But for now, I'm just going to use it because I think he sort of led us there. Um, what Isaiah's promising and what Isaiah says the people need is the people need another exodus. So 
So think about this. The pe- God's people here had already had an exodus, right? They'd been taken out of slavery in Egypt. They'd been constituted as his people. He, he came into their presence, uh, but gave them his law. But they totally disobeyed it. And, and in every area, at every phase of their society, they're abandoning the Lord. And so what, what the prophets promise at the end of the Old Testament, this is so key for understanding the New Testament and what Jesus does, is the prophets say what you need in order to have this problem solved is you need another exodus. And so the reason why this is so important is because one of the things that the New Testament writers try to show us is that Jesus comes, um, yes, as God incarnate and all that, but he also comes taking on some specific roles and doing some specific things, including being this prophet like Moses. He, he's he's, he's the, the last Adam, but he's also the, the second Moses. And he's leading his people out of, of exile again. Now, he does it in a way that's surprising and unexpected to the people of his day. Uh, I don't think it would have been surprising to Isaiah, but it was surprising to the people in the first century. But that's, that's what he does. Because the people, you get to the end of the Old Testament. For instance, if you look at Nehemiah, uh, which is one of the last, chronologically, one of the last books we have. Nehemiah has actually brought a remnant of people back to Jerusalem, as you know, builds the walls, builds the temple. But what Nehemiah says in his prayer after having done all of that is he says, Lord, um, all this is is a tent peg in the land. And, And we are your people and we're here in Jerusalem, but we're still in slavery. We still, if you, you can read Nehemiah 9, that's what he says. We're slaves. So we're in the land, but we're slaves in the land. We're, we're here, but but we're not really here. I mean, we're not really here in the, in the big picture sense. We're still exiles. Or if you look at Matthew's gospel, remember how Matthew divides up the genealogy of Jesus? He's the son of Abraham, the son of David. And, and, and what Matthew says at the end is, there are 13 generations from Abraham to David. And 13 from David to the exile. And then 13 from the exile to the birth of the Messiah. And you go, oh, Matthew sees them as still being in exile, even though they're living in the land, even though they have a temple, even though, you know, so it's not until Jesus comes that they're out of exile um, in Matthew's mind. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the prophets. What they need is a new exodus and they need God to do what he did, leading them out of slavery and bringing them and guiding them as his people after having cleansed them, right? It's got to be both and. Um, you can't have one of these without the other. All right. So you, you, you guys going to have to leave in like five minutes. Is that correct? Or seven minutes? Yes, about seven. Okay. So, so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to set a record here and, 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 and do <laughs> just total injustice to the text of the Bible. Um, so that, so that we can, we can, uh, uh, um, get through this. In Isaiah 5, um, there are a series of woes that are given. And this series of woes, um, I'm just going to read them. I'm going to read them beginning in verse 8 and going through uh, verse 22. And so I'm going to skip around, but I'll tell you where I am. 
And then, and what I want you to do is to try to think through, are there any commonalities to these woes? What holds these woes together? Verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. I'll skip to verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord. Um, let's see, uh, verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with the cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his, um, of his right. Now, what... I, just to kind of put get, get to the point, um, what the picture that that is described here is a picture of essentially human folly, as is expressed in um, really in the whole Bible. And, and some of the key elements of human folly are these: first of all, a kind of a kind of arrogance and pride um, at, at at thinking that you can accomplish something apart from the Lord. Uh, or, or sometimes it takes the shape of sort of challenging the Lord. Let's let's see if the Lord helps me, then maybe I'll listen to Him. Uh, we see that play out in, uh, in in verse nineteen. And, and the other image that's that's frequently given in terms of human folly has to do with drunkenness. And it's not because necessarily that's this sin above all sins or anything like that, but it's kind of a stand-in for just. Um, uh, you know, pursuing your own ends and and, and 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 then having no sense. Here's here's what the Lord here's how the Lord summarizes it back in thirteen, because ultimately all of this is going to take them into exile. Therefore, my people, these are people who know God's law. My people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with. Thirst. Verse 15, man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And, and how is this exile going to play out? Let me just show you in verse 26. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken, um, and basically they're going to get carried away. So what the Lord says is this, you as my people are engaged in folly against me, you've ignored my commands, you're doing your own thing, you're enmeshed in your own pride and pursuit of pleasure, you're acting foolishly, and here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to actually take you into exile by calling, a, sort of raising a signal or blowing the whistle. And, and what's going to happen is a foreign power is going to come in and take you completely away. So Isaiah is not going to be a popular guy 
because he's standing there in the midst of their relative prosperity and saying everything you think makes you safe is actually what puts you at risk because you're basking in your own pride. Everything you think uh, you can do because you're secure is actually further ensuring your lack of security and and these nations that you think you have a temporary kind of hold on, the Lord is going to call them and they're going to come in and take you out. And actually, it's only in the midst of that judgment that the Lord will then raise up a deliverer and bring you out like he brought you out of Egypt in the future. Now, it's not, um, it's a reminder. I'll, I'll just end with, um, I'll just end with this for the last minute. It's a reminder that there is a consistent pattern we see in Scripture that I've tried to show even in the book of Acts with apostolic preaching, which is God exalts himself and God brings about salvation through judgment. Now that's going to happen in one of two ways, the New Testament says. Either God brings salvation or, or, or brings about his justice, let me put it that way, brings about his righteous ends and his justice by judging his own people justly, or God brings about salvation by judging the one we're going to read more about in Isaiah, by judging his son, and then forgiving those who are in him. And But, but it's always got to be through judgment, is the point. And so the emphasis on judgment in Isaiah 1-5 through 5 both highlights the severity of sin, but also gives us this pattern of how God has to work in order to bring about his salvation and bring about his his merciful ends. That's a just a scratching the surface overview. Let me let me pray for 30 seconds and then and then go. Lord, we are conscious that we are just scratching the surface. There are so many endless riches to your word, but we pray that you would use this time in our own lives that we might continue to meditate on these things and and that we might glorify you in so doing. We pray that you would prepare our hearts even now for coming to you in worship. Please find our worship acceptable in your sight, in your Son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.